EMS1.com is the number one online resource for the EMS community and authoritative voice in pre-hospital care. Our members enjoy access to exclusive content from top EMS educators and physicians, award-winning e-newsletters, original video series, member-only product discounts, access to free continuing education courses, and much more. If you're an EMS and not a member of EMS1, join the community for free today. Just go to ems1.com backslash registration. That's ems1.com backslash registration to become a member. Well, by that old clock on the wall, it's once again time to go inside EMS. Welcome to 2019. We kind of missed you last week, but 2019 is off and running, and we know that we are going to have an amazing year, and we need to be able to make sure that we do the things that we need to do so we get the very best out of 2019 for ourselves, for our professional and personal development. But here's a man who I am going to try to be like this year. I am going to try to emulate my good friend, the notorious KFG, Kelly Grayson. KG, what's going on? I'm I'm good, man. Uh, you're 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 finally uh, deciding to emulate me. Well, well you know, I'm gonna you, give I'm gonna give it a go. I mean, you're having you're not having any luck at it, so I figure I'll give it a shot. <laughs> um, you, there there are worse goals in life. That, that's true. You, you, it's a noble goal to try to be more like me. So I'll I'll support you in that effort uh, at self development. That's awesome, man. I appreciate it. So, uh, any news? The holidays? What's going on? I mean, we had some really great uh-huh. shows at the end. That medical marijuana thing, boy, oh, yeah. that got a lot of legs, uh-huh. didn't it? We, um, uh, I'm I'm starting EMT classes soon, and we're we're working on setting up a, you know, kind of making the the next evolution in in my classroom design and everything. We're setting up a little sim lab and and doing a, a whole lot more interaction and dynamic learning exercises in, in this next iteration of the class rather than uh, than lecturing. Uh, you know what would really uh, be cool, man? And I wish I would have brought this up before. It'd be really cool to get one of your students to kind of talk to them about their transition into learning to become an EMT. So maybe we mm-hmm. can think about that. Yeah, yeah. The, the last class was very small, very small, and so... We didn't get a chance to do that, but this next class uh, should have decent enough enrollment, and we'll pick a student. We'll we'll bring them on. So uh, I'm going to look forward to that. I think that's going to be really yeah. good. And you know, today, Kelly, one of the things that we we think about as as we start to maybe lay out what 2019 looks like for shows. I was reading recently about peer reviews and listening mm-hmm. to some folks' opinions about how peer reviews are part of a, a good EMS system. I don't know how I feel about it, to be honest with you. But yeah. part of my expertise before I got into the operational side of the business was mm-hmm. in the clinical department. I started off as a paramedic, of course, became an FTO. I was the clinical coordinator, became the clinical director of MedStar in Fort Worth, Texas. And then I had the opportunity to do a bunch of teaching. And then I, I transitioned to the operational side. One of the things we don't really talk about 
is the clinical department and the clinical side of EMS. And I thought it would be fun to, to kind of talk about my perfect, you know, clinical department and what that would look like for EMS. And I think it's a good way to start off the year. And uh, yeah. you're going to facilitate the discussion and I'm going to kind of share some expertise and we'll kind of go back and forth to talk about some of those best practices. But to me, the clinical department is the most important part of the organization, having worked for uh, a private system, having worked for a for-profit system. It seems that the clinical department is always the first place where cuts take place, and that's always the biggest mistake. I'd be interested in your thoughts. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because in, in my experience, there, I, I know of many people uh, or systems that think they're they're clinically progressive and, and, and render excellent care. <laughs> Uh, and while they may have um, excellent protocols and, and, and uh, a medical director who, who empowers his employees uh, to, to render that care, um, quite often uh, something is lost in the translation from my interaction with dealing with the actual medics that provide the care. There's something lacking. So th- there's, there's often a disconnect there. Describe for me your perfect clinical department. Yeah, I mean, I think when we talk about a perfect clinical department, we have to think about all the components of that, and and yeah, I don't know that we can... process. It's not something you're ever going to attain, but yeah, you know, exactly right. And, and the thing about it is, you've got to be able to put the focus. I mean, so I, I would think the first thing that we want to be able to look at is we want to be able to look at our providers. You know, I, I don't know if you know this, Kelly, but EMS is a very egotistical business. And no. if, yeah, no, that's all right. Calm down. It's but it's the ego. That keeps us from asking the question why, because we don't want to look like we don't know what we're talking about in front of our peers. Now, this is a horrible place to be. If you know everything there is to know about EMS, raise your hand. I know I can't do it. I know you can't do it. And really, nobody can, because it's an ever-changing, it's an ever-changing practice, and we've got to be able to stay up on that ever-changing practice. So to me, the focus of the clinical department, of course, needs to be the care that the providers are giving in the field. So if I'm going to build a clinical department, the first thing I want to be able to look at is how those providers are delivering the care. Now, you say protocols. To me, it makes no difference what the protocols are. The protocols are the baseline. The protocols are the guideline. We're going to follow the protocols based on our uh, need to be part of the medical director's practice. But what I want to be able to do now is I want to be able to take whatever protocol that the medical director is going to give us and make certain that the providers have a strong understanding about the pathophysiology, about the disease process, about the management and treatment of that disease process. So when they see the things that they need to see based on whatever those protocols are going to be, they're going to have comfort in being able to treat that have an understanding as to the why. What we don't do well enough is we don't bring people into the organization and help them grow to the next level of who they are as providers. You know, we talk about hiring. Are we hiring the best people? Are we hiring that that unicorn employee that's the perfect employee? we got to stop thinking about that. What we have to do is we have to hire employees and then find out what their skill set is, find out what their knowledge is, and then take them from point A and bring them to point B and guide them to point C. And then that's how you're going to be comfortable 
with whatever happens. You know, Kelly, I'm going to ask you the question, and I'm going to answer it is, what's the one call that gives the e- the EMS provider the most trepidation? And you're going to say it. Pediatric. We all know it. But here's the question I'm going to ask the people who are out there. If you said pediatrics, what are you doing? If you know that's your weakness, what are you doing to make it a strength? Even more culpable, though, Kelly, me as the leader of the clinical department or me as the leader of the organization, if I know that your weakness is pediatrics, what am I doing to help you make that a strength? And if I'm not doing anything, as a leader, am I culpable in your preparation or your lack thereof of dealing with those pediatric patients? So the first step is... I need to be able to take protocol. I need to be able to match it to the skill set that I want the paramedics and EMTs to have. Then I need to be able to test your knowledge on where you are in that skill set and develop a plan to help you develop to your next level of care. That's number one. What do you think? It's funny that you mentioned that because you sounded like Nancy just then. Oh, that's nice. Thank you very much. That's nice to know. Nancy's a very smart woman. Uh, she has a, a saying she's very fond of, hire for attitude, train for ability. And and when you were saying that, you know, you, you can't, uh, you have to hire medics uh, who, who have good sense, but uh, they can't know everything. And you have to hire them at point A and, and, and help them develop to point B and point C. Uh, in a nutshell, that's what she's saying. You hire for attitude, people who are going to be lifelong learners and have a thirst for clinical ex- excellence and, and self-improvement. And then you, you nurture that uh, as, a, as a, a leader, a supervisor, as a medical director. Um, the, the, the funny thing is, though, when you said, now I mentioned the protocols. I'm not a huge fan of the, the protocol monkey mentality, but when you said protocols are the starting point, uh, and that the the real foundation needs to be a strong grasp of pathophysiology and the understanding of disease processes. It's funny that you say that because the stronger and more in depth your path your pathophysiology knowledge is, the more limiting your protocols become. the The stronger your knowledge base and the the, the more diverse your knowledge base, the more you op- open you are to nuance. And protocols just simply do not do nuance very well. Um, it's hard to be a protocol follower and be a thinking clinician. So I guess what I would say to you in reply is, and, and I want to hear your thoughts on this, it's not so much the protocols of the agency that determine strong clinical performance and, and clinical excellence. Uh, to me, it would be how does the supervisors, the leadership, and the medical director deal with deviation from protocol? I think that's where the rubber meets the road. How do you deal with the employee that does something that's not necessarily in the protocol um, yet was clinically appropriate for the patient? How would you approach that sort of thing? Well, I mean, I think that that really depends on the philosophy of the medical director. You know, my job in the role as leader is to make sure that that medical director who's putting his license on the line, who's putting his career on the line, who's putting his ability to prescribe narcotics on the line for EMS is met. And if I go to them and say, Doc, you know, the protocols or guidelines, are you going to allow some wiggle room in treatment? He's going to give me the yay or the nay. He's going to say, no, I want these protocols followed to the letter. Then I'm going to need to find out why. Is it because he and, is... And who else will be willing to be medical director? 
No, you're absolutely right. So, but if he says, I want them followed to the letter, he, they're his protocols. We work for him under his license. We have no choice. Yeah. But I want to be able to examine the why. If the why is I don't trust our paramedics, then I'm going to challenge him to say, you give me six months and let me get them up to speed to where you feel comfortable with them. So, yeah. but I think that there are protocol deviation. And when that happens, I have always talked to the paramedic about why. I have always uh, then gone back to the medical director and said why. And then I've let the chips fall where they may. You know, if you're a cowboy and all you've done is deviated from protocol, it's not yeah. your job to practice medicine. If you, no. can, if you can justify to me how you came to the decision that you came to, I'm going to stand behind you and I'm going to support that decision. So, yeah. you know, I, I think that protocol deviations within a system needs to be able to be a learning process, right, wrong, right, mm -hmm. different, a learning process. But the end result is somebody has to take responsibility. So if we yeah. go back to this concept of the perfect clinical department, the first thing is we need to make certain that our providers are top-notch. You know, one of the best practices that I like to bring into an organization is I want the EMS professionals to take an exam every single year. Whether it's a 150-question or 200-question exam, I want them to take that exam. Now, this exam is not like any other exam. It's going to be broken down into segments. The segment is trauma, medical, airway, cardiology. And then from mm -hmm. those scores, I want to be able to develop a personal improvement plan for your clinical knowledge. Now, CQI is always going to be the basis for good education. But you know what, Kelly Grayson? Yeah. I don't need to teach you cardiology. I don't need to waste your time with cardiology. But I know that in your assessment exam, you know, you got a little bit of challenge with airway management. You got a little challenge with some pathophysiology. You got a little bit of challenge with your uh, trauma knowledge. And that's where my focus is going to be for you. Yeah. So by the end of the year, when you take that exam again, you're going to be solid clinically. So with that said, but the next component, I think, to a solid clinical department is your field training officer corps. These are the gatekeepers to your organization. These are the initial leaders of your organization. These are the people who are going to be able to guide you when you come on their truck after you've been hired into the organization to teach you not necessarily how to be a paramedic, but how to be a paramedic in the specific system. Talk about the posting plans. Talk about, you know, the hospitals that we go to. Talk about, you know, all the things that you need to know how to be part of the organization. And this just isn't clinical. This is about payday. This is about holidays. This is about asking for Christmas off. This is about, which you don't get when you come in an organization, this is about talking about the, the perfect shifts to get. This is all the things that we don't get inside our organization. Hey, you know what? I I'm having a little problem. What, what about this EAP thing? What can you tell me about that? You know, yeah. we put these people on the truck, Kelly, we tell them, train them, and get them out. Well, that's not what their position should be. These guys and girls should be just as important and equal to any operational supervisor in the system. Their ability to be leaders, mentors, and role models are just as important as the operational supervisors we have in our system. We need to give them the authority they need. 
We need to be able to recognize them for the work that they've done to get up to the clinical, uh, to be the clinical experts in the system. One of the things that I did uh, in my systems is, and depending on the FTOs we had, is every FTO was a subject matter specialist. This FTO was in charge of cardiology. Mm -hmm. This FTO was in charge. Yeah, this FTO was in charge of airway. And I wanted them to be as solid as they can be and share their knowledge. And then every quarter, every four months, we would rotate. And, uh, you know, you were doing cardiology this month. Now you're on airway. And it was up to these folks to develop or find articles or develop some CE. Uh But they were the ones. So now when we had a problem with a 12-weight EKG, I can go and find Kelly Grayson, who was the SME in cardiology, and say, hey, Kelly, mm-hmm. I got this, I got this, uh, you know, I got this uh, 12 lead here. Can you kind of help me walk through this? But they have to be yeah. able to be approachable. They have to be able to be seen as authority. And they have to be able to make certain that their job is to help guide the workforce during training, after training, and if any recertification or re-education needs to be done. That's my FTO thought. Well, what do you think? Let me, let, me inter- let, me, let me counter you with this. Now, um, uh, I love the idea of, of individual FTOs being subject matter experts. Do you make, would you make your, your new hires uh, and, and, heck, even current employees uh, work with each FTO during their clearance process or, or on a regular basis as they get, you know, can, can share some of that knowledge? Or do you do yeah. just do on an ad hoc basis? If this guy's a little weak, put him with this FTO. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is an ad hoc thing. It depends on the system. One of the things that we have to remember is that we're short staffed yeah. in EMS. We do have to get the resources yeah. into. Yeah. We do have to get the resources into the field. We can't have a twenty week, you know, uh, knee up uh, academy. Some people yeah. have a long, you know, knee up uh, process, new employee orientation process, and, and FTO. When I was at MedStar, yeah. as a matter of fact, sometimes these people would be in the academy and go through what we would call phase three training and phase four training, and it would yeah. be six months before they got their own truck. Well, don't tell yeah. me, don't tell me that we're having a staffing issue if you've got twenty five people who are going through six months of orientation. Um, yeah. So I, I think that the SME isn't necessarily for the sake of the new employee coming into the organization as much as it is for the incumbent employees to have somebody to rely on. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Now, your mentioning of, of FTOs is, 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 to my mind, where the rubber meets the road. Uh, I liken FTOs in any EMS agency to being the, the non-coms. Uh, equivalent to to the non-coms in the military. And and anyone will tell you who's ever served in the military that the professional keepers of the flame, the, the passers-on of tradition, the people that, that, that really run uh, the show are the, the senior NCOs. Um, uh, you know, officers come and go, uh, but, but where the actual culture of the organization is established and maintained is to the NCOs. Would you, would you agree or disagree with that? No, I think that the you know the the non commissioned officers in the military are the backbone to the success of the organization. Exactly, and that's exactly where the FTOs uh, are are their analogs because you can have senior management and leadership and and a medical director who's really gung ho, but unless you've got really really good FTOs, none of that translates to street level care. 
Um, and, and I see this continually because I tear my hair out when I send students to clinicals and their FTO has signed off their forms and, it's, and, and uh, they have a questionable command of the English language and they have uh, uh, and they, they actually uh, promote bad habits in my students. I had one student tell me the other day that they, uh, they had a slow shift. They only did three uh, transfers and they were uh, dialysis patient transfers and no emergencies um, and they didn't take any vital signs. Now, this is an FTO with what he knows is a brand spanking new impressionable EMT student. And they did not check vital signs on right. any of their. Yeah. And there were, of course. Yeah. You know, miss so-and-so because you see her twice a day, three times a week. Yeah. But you still do an assessment, even a perfunctory assessment. Right. And you take vital signs. You know, one of the things Yet, one of the things about, has a has an impressionable EMT student yeah. and they did not do that sort of thing. And they represent that's the way it ought to be done in EMS. And Chris, to my mind, that's the more common type of FTO than what you describe. And I, I think, see that kind of crap all the time. But one of the things that we have to think about is if we run across those people, we yeah. have to be able to be true to our employee. And if we have FTOs that are doing those things and, and cutting corners, they're not going to be considered to be field training officers in the system that I work in. Now, one of the things yeah. that you said, I, I just want to bring a point to is just because you know, this woman doesn't necessarily mean one of the lessons I think that a lot of folks got in the system. One of the systems I worked in was a frequent flyer and you know, his name and you know, his voice when he calls dispatch. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of times we'd see him and I got to tell you, Kelly, I was a little guilty of this as well. Come on, get in the ambulance. Let's go. I've, I've been not to, but I, I also am but, cognizant of the fact that I've got an impressionable rookie in my truck and, and I don't want to pass my cynicism and, and world weariness and, and complacency off to them. So I at least make a show of it. But one you of know, the even though that, I don't want to wrap the cuff around his arm, what his blood pressure is likely to be right. and that sort of thing, but I'm going to do it anyway. But in this case that I was bringing up, this frequent flyer who we would see all the time, wound up mm-hmm. going to the hospital and eventually this one day wound up in a coma with a blood sugar of 600 hey. and nobody decided to do an assessment. Nobody decided to do anything. So when we think about field training officers, when we think about protocols, another thing that I would do in the system, my, my ideal system, clinical system, there needs to be clinical oversight in the field. Oh yeah. And you know, the, that means your, your FTOs actually get on a truck and ride with people as well. As well, or that there are clinical supervisors who are going to help out on calls. Mm-hmm. Because we need to be able to do field assessments of your medicine. Now, you, you may be listening out there and rolling your, eyebrow, rolling your eyes to say, wait a minute, now I'm going to have somebody follow up on me? Are you doing the best job you can at your assessment? Are you delivering the best possible care that you can? Maybe the answer is yes. Well, you know what? I've got paperwork now from a clinical seasoned supervisor who's saying your assessment skills are stellar. Your intubation skills are outstanding. You're able to start an IV. You have good communication skills with your patient. And now when it comes time for your evaluation, I'm not just evaluating on you if you can get out of a hospital in a 20-minute time period. I'm now evaluating you on your clinical care secondarily. 
If you need help with your assessment skills, if you need help with your communication skills, if you need help with your ability to read an EKG, there are people mm -hmm. who are going to be able to point that out and say that, let's go ahead and help you develop. We, we, we seem to be in this quagmire, Kelly, that if I come up on your scene, I'm checking up on you. Well, who, who the heck are you that you don't get, that you don't get supervised? We've come into this process that we think that if I'm going to be supervised, I'm being watched. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, in any job you go to, your supervisor is paying attention to your work. So if I come on your scene, now I think the thing that we have to do with that is I have to understand that if I'm the clinical supervisor who's coming mm -hmm. on your scene, my job isn't to take over your scene. My job isn't to tell you what to do. My job isn't, my job is to be a resource to you. What can I help you do? What do you need to start an IV? I'll help you start an IV. What do you need a set of blood yeah. pressure? Let me get you your set of vital signs. What do you yeah. need? What do you, it's not that I'm there, you're there for me. I'm there for you. And I don't dare step on your toes as you deliver care to that patient. It's my job to be a resource. It's my job to observe. It's my job to document the call that I'm able mm -hmm. to talk with you later and say, what an outstanding job you did. Or, you know, have you considered this in these cases? We don't do that enough. So if we're yeah. able to put an expert in the field who's able to help polish the skill. Now, I may show up on Kelly Grayson's call totally random two or three times in a shift, and I'm just there to help. I, I'm not having yeah. to worry about, you know, your medicine. I'm not having to worry about how you're talking to a patient. But you know what? I can document that for you. I can prove yeah. that you're doing an outstanding job. And then when a patient calls to complain and says, Kelly Grayson was rude to me, I could say, you know what? I've been on so many calls with Kelly, and their rapport is just stellar. I can't. Yeah. I can never see them doing a thing like that. Who's got your back yeah. when it comes to those things? So now, solid clinical supervision in the field for the purposes of development, for the purposes of evaluation, for the purposes of continuity of care, for the purposes of whatever it is. Another great component of a good clinical department. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, I, I think to to. To put a bow on that, there's two elements to making sure that that sort of interaction between the clinical supervisor and and the crew member, uh, there, there's no pushback on it. Uh, and it's the preceptor and the preceptee. You make sure that the people you hire welcome that sort of oversight and people who are clinically competent and confident uh, in their skills and their abilities uh, and, and approach patient care with the right kind of attitude don't mind being watched. They don't mind being watched. If they're resentful of being watched, there's one or two reasons. Either they, they are uncomfortable with the care that they're, the, the, the quality of the care that they're providing, or they have been burned in a system that had really bad preceptors who, who practiced punitive CQI uh, in the past. That's entirely a possibility in our profession. But the other, the other flip side of that coin is the other part of the equation that is the preceptors' uh, attitude themselves. Um, to which, to my mind, what makes the best preceptor is not necessarily someone who is clinically proficient. That's obviously what you want, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you a choice. What is more important to you in choosing a preceptor in your system or a clinical supervisor in your system? Is it their character traits that make them a good mentor and evaluator uh, and, and teacher, or is it their clinical proficiency? 
Man, I know man. you want both. Everybody would want both. But if you had to choose one, if one was somebody's clinically proficient but not stellar, but they're great with people, would you take that guy over the guy who's a bit of a jerk, but he knows his business cold? You know, Which uh, one? That's, a, that's a tough question. It truly is a tough question. And, you know, you think it's a slam dunk question, but I don't think it is. Well, no, no, it's a difficult question if I'm going to make you choose. Well, here's what I would think. I would think it makes no difference. It's easier really? for me, yeah, it's easier for me to take somebody that has a solid clinical knowledge and give them the soft skills they need to communicate, to conflict resolute, to uh, have emotional intelligence. I can teach you emotional intelligence a lot faster than I can teach you what the, the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system means in congestive heart failure. So if you have a good pathophysiology and clinical knowledge, I can give you, I can share with you the communication skills. I can share with you how to deal with a conflict. I can talk to you about inspiration and motivation. That, that's my job. My job as the clinical director is to make sure your job as the, as the supervisor, as the field training officer, are able to have the skills necessary to be successful. So if you tell me, Chris, this guy isn't really as solid clinically, but man, his soft skills are great. I'll work with his clinical skills. I'll help him get his clinical skills up there. If you tell me that he's got solid clinical skills, but he's a jerk, I'm going to work with the jerk. So to me, it makes no difference. You And here's, here's my job as a leader, is to find out your starting point for success. What's yeah. your knowledge? Where, what's your experience? You know, we hire people in that have 10 years of experience as a paramedic, and we think that they're going to be the best employee in the world. Does their knowledge stop there? Does their experience stop there? Do, do they not need to grow anymore? So it makes no difference what you come in with. You need to be able to have that foundation to say, this is my knowledge, this is my experience, these are my skills, and i got to get you to the next step, man. If I don't get you to the next step as a leader of the organization, I've failed you. So to, to answer your question, makes no difference. You give me the employee, and I'll polish the skill. Yeah, see, I, and and I I disagree with you. I see your point that it makes no difference. You 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 fix uh, or you help provide or help teach was it what isn't there? Whether it's clinical skills or the soft skills, I just think that it's harder to teach the soft skills. You know, you can you can teach you, you can teach them how to do stuff, but it's hard to unjerk a jerk. Um, and and uh, I think the soft skills are are harder to quantify, but they're also a heck of a lot harder to teach. But that's my own personal philosophy. It's not to say that yours is invalid. Um, and the fact that you, you look at it like whatever they're lacking, that's what, we'll, that's what we work on to provide in developing our, our supervisors uh, is, is well made. But it's interesting, man. I, uh, you know, uh, talking with you on a podcast and, and all our interactions over the years, uh, it's, uh, it's you and I disagree on many things, and we also agree on a great many more. And uh, I have to say that I probably could could work for you. <laughs> um, well, well and, that's, and, that, that's very nice of you to say, but I, I'll say it this way. Nobody works for me. We all work together. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Uh, okay. I, I would work in, in a system. I, I, I would be comfortable in a system that you, you manage. So well, i got to tell uh, you, I mean, that, 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 is, truly a, a, that is truly a nice thing for you to say. And uh, But one of the things that we've got to think about is the people who are in our organizations are the resources mm -hmm. that determine 
my success. You know, if you think about the true measurement of leadership success, if you think about the true measurement of, you know, clinical success, it's how mm-hmm. engaged, satisfied, and productive oh, yeah. your workforce is. Oh, yeah. So if I, no know, if I know that, and I'm not putting everything, 100% of effort, into making the very best employees that we have, I am failing those employees, and I do, do not deserve to be in that leadership position. And that answer right there is what sums up what makes an excellent clinical department right there. That attitude. Um, if you realize that your people are the most important part of the equation, uh, and if you're not getting the best out of your people, that's a failure on you uh, leadership-wise, that's, that's how you establish that, that culture of, of clinical excellence. Um, but, hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think about it. What makes an excellent clinical department? What makes a good clinical supervisor and preceptor? Email us your thoughts at the show at ems1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Sebolero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We're going to catch you guys next week.